is that our relationship with nature has been truncated by so much humanness that sometimes we forget how important it is to really observe what's there before we impact it. It's a huge embodied energy to building a house or any building, any structure. And that's why I feel like if it's a building that people feel like, wow, this is incredible, then it's kind of like a Japanese temple where they, they survive hundreds of years because people know that thought has been put into it. And to me, that's really important. If you're going to build something, build it with so much love that nobody can destroy it. That's Everest McDonald, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wakalek, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down in conversation with people to hear about the stories that brought them to this magical little part of the world we live in, and also hear about the transformative and pivotal stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. There is a quote I really love, and it's, good stories happen to those people who can tell them. I believe that to be true, but I also believe if you lead an extraordinary life, then you're going to have amazing stories to tell, and that's what we have on deck today. Ladies and gentlemen, we got a doozy for you. This episode I did is the longest one I've ever done, and that's because the amazing stories just kept coming and coming. Everest's family history on Pender Island goes back well over a century, and she talks about her experiences as a very young child visiting the island, and how at a very young age she built a tree fort on the island, which was her first foray into building, and much more of that would ensue. In this interview, Everest talks about building her own cabin on Savory Island, as a teenager professionally competing in downhill mountain biking and snowboarding, creating musical furniture, She will also explain how her career as an architect has developed over the years and her method and process involved in design. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. It's been a little while since I put a podcast out because I've been taking a little time off in the summertime to step away from this because I find less people listen in the summertime and it gives me an opportunity to take a little break. I plan to have more regular episodes coming in September through the rest of the year, so stay tuned for that. I hope everybody out there has been having a good summer. I certainly have. So first, a little bit of music, and then my interview with Everest McDonald. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me, Everest. Thank you, Chris. All right. And to give context to the uh, people listening, what is it? We're in late July here. June. Oh, it's June. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm like fast forwarding here already. Okay. Thank you for correcting that. It might be late July when they're listening to this. It probably will be. Yeah. It might even be August. Okay. What time is it right now? Maybe 9, 8.30? Yeah. Oh. This is the latest I've ever recorded a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's close to solstice. It is. I think I'm really looking forward to this because we're going to be moving from light into dark while mm-hmm. we're doing this, which is more of a uh, wintertime podcast thing for me. But uh, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. How has your day been so far? It was great. It was full. I was meeting with my business partner and then cleaning. And then Ronnie showed up. And put some, moved some stones for me and built a little two stone steps, which are gorgeous because he's the most amazing stone 
artist. Ronnie Henshaw. Yeah. Yeah. He can read land and a stone better than anybody else, in my opinion. Sweet. Ronnie actually did work in our yard, too. Oh, really? Yes, You're lucky. Did. That's what uh, we were told, and I, I feel fortunate, for sure. Yeah. Flattened it out, smoothed out the backyard there. Yeah. People are like, wow, this is a really flat yard you have. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is great to have on Pender Island. It's so very rare. unusual. Very unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the traditional first question that this podcast mm-hmm. always gets to, and that, of course, is what brought you to Pender Island? Well, my family history. Yeah, my great-great-grandfather came over here to follow his sister, who is, uh, her name was Henrietta Menzies, and she lived across from where the fire hall and the and the PlayStation are now. And she came and then told my great-great-grandfather that it's pretty amazing here, and he should consider coming here. He was in Ontario, and so came over here, and the land uh, across was available, so he just set up shop there and built a house there all hand-hewn logs and blacksmithed nails and made a five-acre orchard and dug a little tiny pond. And uh, yeah, but the the land was beautiful for sheep and and not so arable, you know. It was good for the orchard, but it did have shale in it. So it was better for, I mean, we we had a bunch of sheep there at one point. Stuff like that. Yeah. Classic. Shale on your property on Pender Island. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is classic. Yeah. Very common. <laughs> yeah. So so your family history goes pretty far back. Yeah. It was I I and I should ask my dad, but it was either eighteen eighty nine or eighteen ninety that he came and started homesteading. Yeah. And so then uh, your introduction to the island happened when you were roughly about what age? I was, well, it could have happened before this, but the most memorable first memory that I have was we were actually over on Wise Island because we had a place over on Wise Island and we came over by boat to come see the farm was owned by my aunt at the time or not my aunt, my father's aunt. She was thinking of selling it. And it had just actually been sitting empty for a while because she couldn't get over here. And um, apparently hippies had moved in to the house and then left it. And so the the windows were boarded up. And I was the only one small enough to fit into the house and try and see if I could open the door. So I remember going in and thinking it was the, the light kind of streaming in through all the spider webs and the dust like just caked on everything so that was kind of my first memory on pender creepy <laughs> yeah. and beautiful creepy for and sure. beautiful <laughs> so, so mostly creepy actually i guess yeah so you went to uh you, you were enlisted by your dad to go take a look at what was going on the inside of the house there That's or i guess right. you had to unlock the door from i had the to inside. unlock the door okay yeah and it, the floorboards were all twisted and it was sinking into the ground because it just had a stone foundation. So every year we'd actually have to go underneath and jack up the house. And I feel like I did, I was involved in that as well because I, I was small, so I could get under the house to maybe put jacks. I can't remember exactly, but I know I went under the house and it was maybe only a foot and a half, like 18 inches high to get under there. 
That's so hilarious. That's also creepy. It was also creepy under the house. It's that time of year, yeah. time to jack up the house. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You don't hear people it was doing an that these affair. days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> family, family affair. Yeah. 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 And so, what year was that roughly? Uh, I believe it was around 1975 or 76. And you were how old at the time? Well, in 76, I would have been three. And that's, I was told that we first came and, and my dad purchased it for my aunt in, when I was three. All right. So your, uh, your first introduction to, uh, to Pender Island was, was at a super young age. It was a building inspection. <laughs> yeah wow that was incredible for a three-year-old yeah. yeah that's a uh, very well done there everest and and so and how, break and enter it, yeah wow all in one right yeah. fantastic did you like write a report afterwards with crayons or no was it i just... don't remember that okay. i just i think those are the only things seared in my memory is going through that narrow passages yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah, the twisted floorboards is a yeah. good, good picture. So well, I was going to say, there's a really interesting story about the floor in, go for it, yeah. in the old farm, is that when my great-great-grandmother was knitting, and it was the middle of summer, she had the front door open to let the fresh air from the, you know, it was too hot, so the fresh air in. And she looked up, and there was a buck in the front entrance. And she screamed and the buck went up on all on the hind legs and came down and made hoof print marks in the front entrance. And it's probably still there. And I used to go there when I was a kid and just feel the hoof prints, the hoof print marks, because I thought it was so cool. That is really cool for sure. I don't know how many people have had a, a deer walk right into their house. Yeah, I haven't had that happen. Brazen. Yeah. I th- maybe they were a little more brazen back in the day. They've, <laughs> they've become a little more shy now. <laughs> They're just looking for carrots that people actually take to them outside. <laughs> yeah. People do do that, apparently. I've heard that. Okay. I've never I've never fed a carrot to a deer before. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't either. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, well, we didn't like the deer. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh, and so as the, the years went by, how did your relationship to Pender develop? Well, um, I traveled over Pender Island often in the back of the pickup truck because that was sort of okay back then. And uh, the driftwood was there and it was much smaller <laughs> and it was kind of loggish, I, I feel like. And um, there was an amazing rope swing that was just where Ainsley Point now is. And you used to have to hike out to the rope swing. Along the edge of the water where all those, where there's houses now. And it was the most amazing rope swing. Do tell. Why was it so amazing? It, okay. So it was attached to a tree that hung out over the ocean. And there was two platforms, like a lower platform and an upper platform that you could leave from. And then you go, go out over, well, the ocean if the tide was in and the beach if the tide was out. And actually once... I went there with my broken arm because I was playing Nerf basketball in a church at the May Day Parade in Victoria. And, uh, and I came down and broke my, my elbow. And, and so then we came back here to Pender and I had the cast. Um, I said to dad, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go to the rope swing with my friend Keely. And, we he's like okay but don't go on the rope swing because you've got a broken arm but keely would not go on the rope swing and it was driving me nuts like she's like i'm scared i'm scared so i took the rope and i grabbed a hold 
I went out not really thinking about the centrifugal force and I went all the way out to the furthest point and the tide was out and I I had to let go like it was too much force and I came down and it actually ripped one side of my shorts completely off. I had like Zulu 1980s uh, surf shorts and yeah, (laughs) anyways, it was horrible. And so then one side of my body was like covered in barnacle scratches and bruises and the other side had my broken arm and it looked like I'd been to war. Yikes. Yeah. But you didn't get the arm wet, obviously. I did not get the arm wet. Job well done. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was hard to hide the fact that I didn't go on, that I did go on <laughs> the rope swing. Yeah. So your dad busted you because of uh, half your body covered yeah. in scratches. And I, I feel like I might have had a discerning look, but I didn't get lectured because I survived. And <laughs> <laughs> because actually it was really treacherous coming back over, like walking and I couldn't walk very well. Yeah. So it was kind of a miracle. To make it back. Treacherous because you're walking over barnacle-covered rocks. Well, no, the path back was really, it was right on the edge. Like, it was a it was a deer path, essentially, to okay. go out there to the, the rope swing. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, well, actually, let's just take a quick side street here because uh, you came over and you brought some pictures. And one of the pictures you showed me, <laughs> you, you had a cast on because you had broken your wrist. And now you're telling me a story about... You broke your elbow? Yeah. And anyways, and you're on this rope swing and falling on barnacles. You sounded like a pretty rambunctious young lady. Yeah. What, what were you like as a, as a kid? It sounds like you really were living life very physically. Yeah, I was a little bit rough and tumble, I guess. Um, and, and I kind of looked like a boy. So um, lots of people mis- mistook me as a boy up until I was about 10 or 11. No, maybe 12 even. I was in high school, grade seven. Grade seven, people still thought I was a boy. And then I guess, you know, I turned into a teenager and there was less confusion. Yeah. But I loved, yeah, I loved doing things that were typically boy activities when I, in that era, during that era. Now you can do whatever you want. It's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) But it's interesting because, uh, fun fact, I've never broken a bone. In my oh wow! Life. Yeah. Okay. So already we're we're talking about uh, two incidences that happened with, uh, with breaks <laughs> in your body. Were those the only two, or were there more? Well, no. Actually, to segue back to ironically, Ronnie. Ronnie came over and was doing some work right at the beginning of COVID because mm-hmm. he was able to still work, <laughs> and it was raining out, and I had to grab something off a slippery, like near some slippery wood. And I fell and I didn't want him to know that I'd hurt myself because I don't know. Anyways, I was kind of embarrassed because I think he made it might have said, be careful or something just before. <laughs> Anyways, for two days, my family is like, you should, you, you should go to the hospital and get your elbow checked out. And I was like, no, because it's COVID. Like, I don't want to go into any hospital right now. And it was really beginning of COVID. It was March, like it was around March 20th or March 30th or something like that. Anyways, I went to Sam Pan because they're, you know, the family's like, you just have to go. And I was like, it's probably nothing. <laughs> and uh, I went there and they, people were shocked that I was coming into the hospital and they gave me the COVID room and they said it actually hadn't been used yet. So it was this, it was actually the safest place because <laughs> I didn't, didn't want to go to the COVID room, but all the other rooms were actually occupied anyways. So that was my other 
broken bone. Yeah, congrats getting the uh, the inauguratory visit at the COVID room. Yeah, I, know. I was like the first person <laughs> yeah. in the COVID room in the San Pan. And you wound up having a break. <laughs> A broken, yeah, my elbow. Same elbow or different elbow? Uh, yeah, uh, same. No, I can't remember. All right. Yeah, I think it was, no, I think it was this elbow, the left elbow for the rope swing. Yeah. And then my right was for when I fell off the tree when I was five. And okay. then, uh, <laughs> and then when I, when I felt slipped on the wo- wet wood. <laughs> <laughs> and there have been no more breaks since. I don't think so. Okay. So that's not, no. that's not a crazy ton of breaks. Okay. No. All right. Uh, okay. Backtracking into uh, childhood again here. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> thank you for mentioning a uh, kick-ass rope swing at Ainsley Point. It was the saddest part about the subdivision. Well, to me as a child, it was the saddest thing about the subdivision, but it was also sad that, you know, there's trees and stuff taken down. There's a subdivision? Oh, Ainsley course. Point Road was considered a sa- subdivision. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I guess that happened in the 80s? I think it happened in the 80s, yeah. yeah. You're spending time on Pender as uh, the years are going by, and did you enjoy being on Pender as a kid? Yeah, I love it here. Yeah. I, I feel like my roots are here, and that's why my children are here, is because it's so nice to have your roots from Pender. You can go anywhere in the world, and... To be able to come back to a place like this and call it home is an incredible thing. Well, tell me more, like the the fact that you you feel so strongly about this place. Why is that exactly? Uh, well, when I was growing up, I really liked the quiet and I loved the arbutus trees and the smell of the arbutus leaves. Like right about now, there's this interesting smell. It's really subtle, but uh, it's so amazing. <laughs> and... I mean, for me, a big part of it is the history. Like my my great grandfather, my grandfather, and my father. Like everybody has told me so many stories, and so I it just that's another reason I feel so rooted here. You know, and all kind of before people were here somewhat, because I remember my grandfather telling me, "I said, what's your favorite place on Pender?" And he said, "It was the Oak Bluffs, but there was no houses there or anything like that." He said he used to go up there when he was deer hunting, and. uh he said he could look down over the cliff and it looked like the ocean was boiling because there was so many herring balls. And then the the whales would be like getting the herring balls and, you know, because the salmon were running and it was just, it was like chaos in the ocean because there's so many fish. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it was a big impact in two generations. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard a story like that before, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you feel a deep sense of connection to this place in large part due to your family history here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I guess little things like I, I loved just hanging out with the trees <laughs> on Bender. On the old farm, there was an arbutus tree that was at the top of the hill. And I think my parents were renting out a teepee at the top of the hill at one point and but we would also go in and stay at it and and the arbutus was above the this teepee and it was a canvas like a canvas tall tent thing and if you lay inside and you looked up it would be like the wallpaper was moving because it was just the arbutus you know the shadows of the arbutus above uh inside the the tent it was so beautiful and we used to sleep up top there on that on that hill and uh the stars i don't know the, i mean the stars are the same everywhere but for some reason when i was a kid growing up 
it was astounding because there's no no light pollution or anything like that. And we used to slide down the hill in cardboard boxes. That was another amazing thing. It's funny that there's like no kids slide down hills in cardboard boxes anymore. <laughs> I'm not, I never see it. And it was literally, we had different tracks and we named them different things just as if it was like a ski run or or like a splashdown park ride or something. We loved it. Have you ever done that? No, I've never gone down a hill in a cardboard box before. But I mean, we might have to initiate something in the future here, right? Like have the uh, cardboard box down the hill day. Oh thing. my gosh. It's it's like literally the funnest thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the grass, like it's you do it in August. The grass is tall and dry and slippery. And then you do a couple tracks down to make your track. And... um and then it gets even slipperier and slipperier because it's just one way. All the grass is facing that way and you're sliding down the grass. How long does the cardboard box last for? Does it hold yeah, up to multiple rooms? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it depends on the type of cardboard box. There you go. And what sure. we'd have box blowout for sure. <laughs> and actually, it was funny because the best place to ride the cardboard boxes was uh, from the Arbutus tree, that one I was telling you about, down. And then there was a fence there. And sometimes we'd take the fence rails out because you'd hit them otherwise, like depending on how fast the grass was in terms of the, <laughs> the slide <laughs> ability. But yeah, like I feel like literally my home was on that hill or under that tree. I carved every boy I ever had a crush on, like initials into that tree. And we built another, we built a tree fort up behind there, me and my cousins, on top of the other tree fort that I built near our house. So yeah, it was just, I, I don't know. Pender Island is, yeah, about building tree forts, sliding down hills in cardboard boxes, carving initials, building fences, and going on uh, rope swings. Yeah, and, and smelling our beautiful leaves. And smelling our beautiful leaves. <laughs> Thank you for all that beautiful imagery, actually. And uh, I'm definitely going to put an effort in tomorrow to smell our beautiful leaves because it's not something yeah. I'm totally familiar with. Yeah, no, it's it's subtle. It's really, really subtle. And it's when they get heated up. That's the important thing. Because when I was a kid, you when you used to have to go around that hairpin turn going down to Poets, you had to honk because it was one lane and it was gravel and it was scary. Of course. And you just hope the other person heard you honking because you couldn't go to the side or anything. You'd have to back up and over. And it was, and I loved that. I thought it was like my favorite place to go. Because it used to be called Bedwell Harbor, not Poets. And we would go there to learn to swim. Well, there in Browning. And when I was a kid, I said, this is my favorite place in the world, that hairpin turn. Because just as you came around, the sun, we usually went there at sundown. And so the sun sets right there. And the sun would hit you in the eye. And I'd, I'd asked for us to either park ahead, like behind, and then walk up there. And that's where I first smelt the arbutus leaves hot, hot from the day. And kind of became aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Mental note to people listening, we're going to touch back into that story again because it's pivotal in Everest's story here. But uh, I, I want to ask you about building tree forts next because we've talked a little bit about this. But uh, it sounds like that was a very pivotal experience in your life. You building an epic tree fort when you were a young girl. Yes. I, bu I built a multi-multi-story tree fort. And the goal was to be higher than our house with the stories. I think it was seven stories, like, and some of them were like small stories, <laughs> like, <laughs> but it was in a cedar tree that had many, many 
like it, it was like a it was almost like a celery <laughs> cedar tree. Like it just had so many things coming out of the base of it, so many trunks because they weren't branches from the base. Like it was like a small grove of cedars, but they were so tight together. And so it made it really quite easy to to build a fort, you know, a fort in there because it had all the points. So that's when I first learned how to build a, a dwelling, I guess. How old were you at this point? I was five or four or five. I have a picture of me sawing, like using a handsaw when I was five. Hold the and, phone. You're four or five using a saw building a fort? Yeah. Really? You were that <laughs> Age? I had no yeah. idea when you're telling me this story earlier. I'm blown away. Okay, yeah. so you're really four or five? Yeah, I was. I was probably five. I was five. I I can send you the photo. It doesn't matter what age it is. It just blows me away that you were that young. Yeah, crazy. So you built a seven story fort, tree fort. Yeah, yeah, and um, with wood that was just reject wood from my my dad would just put it aside. And he, he gave me the pile of wood. He said, you can have this wood. You can do whatever you want with this wood. And it was so liberating to have like a pile of wood. And I think I had, I don't know if I had my own saw, but I, it was a small saw that I used. <laughs> and uh, I, at a, the picture, I am barefoot sawing. Uh, so, yeah. And... What else about the treehouse? <laughs> well, I, so then you uh, you have this experience of this age of uh, building a treehouse, which very few kids do that at that age, I would imagine. Like, that's a pretty unique thing. And so you, you build this tree fort, and then you said that you build a second one with your cousin? Yeah, yeah. Well, my, so I think my cousin, I don't know, I don't remember exactly, but I only imagine, because I remember he was kind of upset when he started the fort. And I think he wanted to add to the fort, but then maybe uh, me and my other girl cousin <laughs> said, "No, you can't add to this fort." So he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna make my own fort." So then he went up on the hill to the top of the hill and started the fort up there. And then we came and joined in because, of course, it's fun to build yeah. forts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right on. So uh, anyway, and this is pertinent because of what happens and where you go later on in life and what you choose to do, which we'll get to in a short order here. But before we do, getting into your teenage years, uh, what sort of interests did you have and what were experiences did you have as a teenager? Well, I actually didn't have that many building experience, like experiences as a teenager, other than um, helping my dad with the with the table saw, often you know to hold the other end, and also with gluing big glue ups, using clamps and cleaning the glue off. For my dad made a lot of hope chests for every single kid in the <laughs> in the family. Cool, and I think he's made twenty two hope chests or something like that, and so. That would happen, and and he would he would ask for just just doing the glue ups and and moving the stuff through the table saw. Other than that, uh, I was in woodworking in high school, but for the most part, I was really into sports okay. in high school, and I competed in mountain biking and I competed in snowboarding. Nice at, at a pretty high level. Although there weren't as many people doing it at the time, so it made made it a little bit easier. I also played euphonium. What is euphonium? It's it's like a small tuba. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking of that because the funny thing is I, I did quite well in 
snowboarding and mountain biking, and there weren't a lot of people uh, competing, mm-hmm. so it was it was easier to be kind of the best or whatever, right? And but same with euphonium. I went to uh, the Kiwanis Music Festival, and I actually had a person who like who was a euphonium specialist teaching me, but I was so nervous and I'm so excited. And I went in the festival, which they grade you and you get, you know, first, second or third or whatever. And I found out that I got first. But then I also found out there's no other euphonium <laughs> competitors. <laughs> so it was a hard, it hardly felt like a first. But in the other mountain biking and snowboarding, there's more people than, than the Kiwanis <laughs> Music Festival. <laughs> well, what, what mountains were you uh, doing those activities on? <laughs> um, for the snowboarding, I actually went uh, all over BC and competed in a series and I didn't go further than BC because I was young and it was, that would be hard to go international. Although I really wanted to go internationally and same with mountain biking. It was all in BC. Yeah. Yeah. But what was your home mountain? Uh, it was actually Cypress mountain and I was on the breakaway bikes team. Yeah. Yeah. I worked in a bike store and building bikes and then, uh, yeah, competed and, and rode up Cypress mountain regularly rode up yeah rode up okay. and then down <laughs> actually one day i said to my mom i came back from mountain biking and i said mom i lost my computer like it was a computer for, that could tell you how far you went i said i i must have been going down this run and uh it must have fallen off and i said i think i went between these two trees and my handlebars got stuck between the two trees and i went flying between the two trees and into the small creek and maybe i lost maybe i knocked it the computer off when I was doing that. And so she's like, okay, I'll drive you up there. Cause I was tired. I'd already gone up Cypress mountain and back down. And I couldn't even walk down the stuff that we were mountain biking down. And we, we did, we found the computer right there. <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing. Like what you can do on a mountain bike. I've done some mountain biking in my young years as well too. And, um, going over the handlebars is a experience I'm familiar with. Very uncomfortable. <laughs> super Very uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Feeling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's really cool. So you competed in both those and you did quite well. Yeah. What did you appreciate about those individual sports? Cause I've done both of those in the past as well too. But, uh, what was it about snowboarding that, uh, that you really enjoyed? Um, I, well, I liked the freestyle. I liked doing half pipe and, uh, and giant slalom, like super GS, like the big, big, big bank slalom mm-hmm. type stuff. And uh, I liked the, the girls that I competed against and with and so forth. It was, it was the era of Ross Rebagliati. Yeah. So I can't even say Ross Rebagliati. Yeah. So actually, I competed with his sister. So it was just up and coming because it was also, um, Oh my gosh, Craig Kelly and all all those people who were quite famous at the time. And uh, what happened actually is my friend went to Vermont and brought back two snowboards. They were the first two snowboards, I think, in like Vancouver. And we went up to Cyprus and just started playing around. I had no idea what it would look like. And so the, for the first year, we were we just played on the snowboards. And then the next year they made, you had to take a, like you had to actually have a certificate to, in order to be able to do snowboarding on the mountain. And then they banned it and then they, it was just all over the map. So it was kind of like a controversial time in snowboarding, but uh, I loved it. And I went, I went all over the place and I was on a team and I was sponsored by Kemper. Uh, yeah. That's super cool. So, yeah. You found camaraderie with your, your fellow um, 
snowboarders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That same with mountain biking. My my team was really awesome, and uh, at one point, I couldn't get a ride up to Whistler, so I rode my bike to Whistler to Whistler on that highway. <laughs> Incredible. And so, when when did you uh, gradually shift away from competing in those two sports? You know, I think it was grade eleven. Or grade, grade 11 or grade 12. Okay. Yeah. I, and I don't think I competed after when I was in university. No. Okay. Yeah. So you're in grade 11, grade 12, and uh, university is uh, is knocking at the door here. What what are you thinking at that time about what you want to pursue in university? Well, the, I actually found a journal recently, and it was for the year that is the same age as Soleil, so my daughter. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to read it to see where she's at in life. Like, maybe this will help me connect. <laughs> and I didn't realize that I literally moved out the day after I graduated or like maybe within three days and went straight to Whistler. And I didn't have huge plans, <laughs> but I, and I applied to Emily Carr and I didn't get in the first time, which was really disappointing because I was really into art. And, uh, but I did get into SFU. So I went to SFU right out of high school. Okay. Well, first I went to Whistler. <laughs> and then actually I kind of stayed in Whistler because I got a job working at a graphic design studio there called Toad Hall Studios. And uh, it was actually kind of funny because I left my portfolio there. And when I came back, they were so desperate for somebody to manage all these artists. But I was 18, 17 or something like that. And I was given this position to manage even though everybody was older than me, they were kind of like too um, too wild to, to tame or something. I'm not too sure. Maybe they didn't like doing paperwork. I don't know. <laughs> but they were amazing artists, incredible artists. But I, yeah, I was hired to, to kind of work at that studio while this guy, the main uh, supervisor, went to Australia. And I actually went there this year. And they're still all the same people are still working there. Whoa, really? Yeah. Like they, it was like, it's, they're incredible people, and uh, and it was a great job. Like I wish I could have stayed doing there, but then I just kept getting distracted by other things. And so, was that just during the summertime? Basically, you were working there, or they went longer well, than that? Well, I actually commuted at one point from Whistler to go to school because I and I made all my courses fit into three days, so I could live in Whistler for four days and then go to school for three days in in the city. And before that job, did you have any previous work experience or was that kind of your first job? Or? Um, no, I, well, I worked at, at Breakaway Bikes as a, I built bikes. I, I worked sort of, not really, but sort of as a junior stockbroker at the VSE. And then I worked at a photo lab developing film and uh, helping to manage the pho photography lab. And then I had a newspaper route and, uh, what else did I, I And then I, I tree planted, but that's coming into university era now. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So we had lots of jobs. Oh, and I, oh, yeah. And actually, for many years, I worked uh, at Cypress Mountain and I did maintenance one year, ski school one year, and then ski patrol for 10 years. 10 years of ski patrol? Yeah. Or maybe 12, 10 or 12 years. Wow. Yeah. At Cypress. And then, actually, I'm a little curious about this job in Whistler, though. Could you just describe it in a little more detail as to what the environment was like and and the exact work that you were doing? Okay, so it was uh, so we did a lot of the silk screening. It was a silk screen shop, but it, we also did graphic design, and it was for 
Whistler and Blackcomb because at the time there was no other graphic design studios. And we made our own kind of funny shirts for tourists, you know, um, and there was a storefront called Santorini. No, Santini. Santini. Santorini is a place in Greece. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Santini. And it was literally the store was maybe four feet wide or maybe maybe five feet wide. Okay. It must have been a hallway that they converted <laughs> to a store. And so it had a wall that was maybe 12 feet tall with shirts. Like, and so you can, you kind of like shimmy into the store and look up and you could pick what shirt you wanted. And then the, we would get it down and then, and then, you know, you could check it out and, and buy it or not. So I, I worked a few, few days there, but mostly I was in the graphic design studio, which was in Function Junction. And uh, I actually lived in a squat just near there and would just ride my bike to work and draw things and, and carve. Uh, at the time, there, it was just getting into uh, tra transitioning. I don't know if anybody listening even knows anything about graphic design, but uh, there was the uh, Amberlith, which is uh, the silkscreen gel that you, could, you would cut the negative out and that would be the part that the that the paint would go through, and then we had we got this big new machine, which was a photo emulsion machine, so that it would actually sort of um, chemically you could spray the photo the uh, amberlith, and it would come out. So you didn't have to like carve with a with a knife the shape that you wanted to come out. Okay. It's hard to explain if you don't know about graphic design, but uh, or silk screening. But it it sounds like it made things easier. Yeah, it made it way easier. Yeah, it would take forever, and then if you screwed up, obviously, like back to the drawing board. Yeah, whereas again. this, you could just draw something, and then it would like the black would the the light couldn't come through, and so then it would it would it was called photo emulsion, and it would do everything for you basically. So you're working in this place, and then when you when you went back to visit recently, you said that the the same people were still working. There. Yeah, yeah, a lot of like at least three of the same three people, which is no, maybe even four. One of them still does drawings and stuff like that, but is is doing um, cinematography and making films and stuff like that. So still creative. Cool. And so you're commuting to SFU while you're living and working at Whistler. And yeah. then what are you taking at SFU? Uh, SFU, I did fine arts there because I still wanted to do art. Mm -hmm. And um, and then eventually I got into Emily Carr as well. So I, I, I received a degree from Emily, well, from SFU actually, because they didn't have degrees from Emily Carr at the time because it was a college. It wasn't a university. Mm -hmm. Now it is. And so I just took my credits from Emily Carr and added them to my credits from SFU and eventually got a, a BFA, so Bachelor of Fine Arts. You get your BFA, and what is your plan at this point? Okay, so then my plan was to go to music school, uh, and I, I applied to Leveland, Texas, South Plains College, for a bluegrass program. And I also applied to Cap College for the jazz program and to Selkirk College in Nelson. Uh, and I thought maybe because when I was in art school, everybody said I did a lot of large sculptural projects. Like I designed this kinetic sculpture that ran, it generated energy and um, ran the whole floor of my art studio floor of the building. What? And yeah, using excess energy that was wasted 
through anyways it's it's like a a guy from bc hydro came and he's like are you in engineering and i was like no i i'm just i just i'm an art student <laughs> and he's like whoa <laughs> but uh so yeah i did all my stuff was quite like large and kinetic. Well, wait, wait, wait. Let, let's just. Let, I just want to know a little bit more about this particular sculpture because it was powering the entire floor. The floor, yeah, the art art floor of of the SFU Art Fine Arts Campus. What? Yeah. It, I, well, at the time, the Fine Arts Campus was actually uh, Princess and Alexander, which is just off Main Street in downtown. It was the highest crime rate in all of Canada location in the early nineties. So it was it was kind of scary sometimes but um anyways there was this big building it was a commercial building actually that had a bunch of fabric and like things to do with textiles mm -hmm. and they rented one of the floors of this kind of big old building <laughs> and i just noticed that there was they were wasting a lot of energy with all of their different fans and so forth so i made this i actually made it myself uh it was a wind generator using a self-exciting um, alternator from like a marine alternator. Mm -hmm. And then I recycled all the bits. Like I found pieces. I, I love going to scrap yards and, uh, <laughs> and car wrecking places and just finding parts and then sticking them together. And I made this uh, essentially a wind generator that, that took the excess, you know, when you, when you go by a building and there's all that fan air coming out, totally. I figured out the exact distance away from that, that I could, uh, get the energy and recapture it and not impact the heating system of the building. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you got an A for that. I, yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's funny because I, I won the Helen Pitt award, which is, I didn't even know there was any awards or anything, but they gave it to me for ingenuity in art. And uh, I used that to buy solar panels. For? From my cabin that I built up on Savory. All right. Did you have the idea to build a cabin on Savory Island at that point? Or how did that? No, I'd already built it? the cabin. Okay. Yeah. So when I was in the graphic design studio, I had, oh, yeah, that's right. I had just finished doing tree planting. Mm -hmm. And we had a really good tree planting situation. We worked in Lillooet and on the Duffy Lake Road. And it was Hector planting. And so the idea of hectare planting is that they've already planted the area, but then you have to go back and see which trees survived and which didn't. And you'd have, you know, bags full of trees and you'd look for, for holes in the forest that was starting to grow. Yeah. And, but if the people before did a really good job of tree planting and the trees survived, then you, you just ran around like frantically looking for holes. And if you didn't have any, you didn't have to go back and reload with your tree bag. And we got paid per hectare. And so there was, I think, five of us on the crew. And we actually planned it. It's really cool because Joffrey, where Joffrey Lake is, that there's like a little valley there. And that's where I planted. So I can go back and visit. It's super cool to see the trees coming up. And like you, usually you go to places and you don't see them. They're on logging roads way far away. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, we did so well financially. And uh, so... Out of the five, I think four of the four of them all are like, I'm gonna buy land in Costa Rica with the money. Cause I think we made we made thousands and thousands of dollars and for just graduating from high school, it was pretty incredible. And I decided I was gonna go to Costa Rica, but I thought, oh no, maybe there's something closer by. 
And I was looking through the newspaper, the Whistler newspaper. I can't even remember what it's called now. But anyways, and there was an ad for a lot on Savory Island. And so I thought, ah, this is, and it was in my budget. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go up there. So I went up there and it was kind of crumbling because it's like sandy on Savory. And my dad recommended that I didn't get it. He also said, you don't quite have enough money. And and I was like, yeah, but I'm close. And he's like, mm, you don't have enough money. I thought, well, I'm never going to find anything cheaper. But I talked to the realtor there and he said, actually, there's this woman who it lives in Winnipeg or someplace and has never seen the lot and she's selling it. And it was exactly the amount I had pretty much. Yeah, I think it was exactly the amount. And so I went there and it was oceanfront. And it was 16 grand. And uh, I bought it that year. And then a year later, I started calling demolition sites and stuff like that and seeing if anybody was just getting rid of stuff. And this one guy called called me back. He said he called me back because he's like, it was so weird to get a message from a girl. <laughs> like, I guess so he's like, I just thought I would call you. <laughs> and they were taking apart Sardis Senior Secondary or Sardis Secondary School. And my dad, ironically, went to that school. Mm. And it was built in the 40s or something, and they were de- demolishing it. So I, I actually didn't really know, other than the tree fort, how to really build a house. And all the people that were working there, I think they all came from from the jail, and then they came to work to demo. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no way. Okay. And so I formed like these friendships with all these people from, <laughs> that would come in on a bus. And and I'd say, hey, like if there's something cool as you're deconstructing it, let me know. Because I was just denailing wood down below, and they showed me how to denail wood. And they'd say, hey, Everest, we're taking apart the stairs. You can see how stringers are and all, you know, and how how this whole thing goes together. So I'd run over, and I'd check out what they were de- demolishing. And then, you know, they'd call me, hey, Everest, we're taking out the the window, you know, come check out the headers and the cripples and everything. So uh, that's how I learned about what a building looked like. Although there was firewalls everywhere. So I kind of thought there was more studs than you needed in a wall okay. because <laughs> anyways. So, yeah, so I, I, I think I, it was like $2,000 or something like that for all the wood I needed to build a cabin. And how did 600 you, square foot cabin. How did you get the wood from uh, that high school to Sabre Island? Well, my, my, okay, my dad lent me his Ford Ranger, which was a small truck. Mm-hmm. And so I would denail wood, fill the Ranger with wood, and then bring it back to my parents' carport. And then, because um, <laughs> they, they had a place in Vancouver at that time. And I got the whole carport full, like full. I looked on the North Shore News and found stoves and just anything that I could. And my budget was low, 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 like free or slightly like a few dollars. Sure. You spent all your money on land already. So that's right. (laughs) Well, this is a year later now. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm like, I finished university. It's the month of May. Uh, The whole month of May, all I did was denail wood and and collect things. Mm-hmm. And I found a generator that was an old parks generator that they were getting rid of. And the guy like showed me how you fix it. And, you know, cause there's no power on, on savory. And then I, uh, got a budget rented truck. And this is the craziest part. Cause I didn't really know what load limits were. And I drove this budget rented truck like jelly. Like it was like jelly. Cause it was so heavy in the back. <laughs> It was a whole cabin in a budget rented truck. <laughs> and I went up there with my boyfriend at the time, who was going actually up to Northwest Territories to work in geo- geology. So 
he he just helped me with that one trip, getting everything up there and out of the truck, which was amazing. But we went up there and got on a barge and then went over to Savory and then immediately got it stuck in the sand on the other side. And they had to get an excavator to pull us off the beach with the <laughs> budget rent truck. And at the time when we were getting the budget rent truck, they were circling like where the where the injuries of the budget rent truck was. Yeah. And they they could have given me a brand new one or the older one. And I was like, no, the old one's fine. They're like, the new one should be coming in at four. And I'm like, no, 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 this one's fine. So I made them do big circles in areas where, <laughs> because then I had to drive it on Savory and it was going against all this brush all the way to uh, the lot, which didn't have a driveway. And uh, and then I had to carry it in. And actually that I almost needed stitches because I, I did rip my finger open carrying a piece of plywood on my back through the trees. And then it got caught in between the two trees. But we carried it all in. And I started building. (laughs) (laughs) And you started building. Yeah. And it took me a month just to do the foundation. Because I had to get the sand from the beach and then let it rain on it to get the salt out of it for the concrete. And I had to dig a hand dig. I was so afraid of um, power tools. (laughs) that I had to hand dig and hand cut everything initially uh, to get down for the foundation and then to build my little A-frame outhouse. Okay, what's occurring to me as you're explaining all this is that uh, how did you learn all these different things? Because you said earlier you were informed by people on the crew that were demolishing the high school come over here and check this out and take a look at how you do this. But uh, it seems like you had an aptitude for being able to figure out the construction side of things. But when you talk about your method for uh, doing the foundation and making concrete, how did you learn about that? Hmm. Um, well, the, the concrete, I mean, I was around my dad who was always doing construction things. So uh, I learned a little bit there. And he taught me how to use a chainsaw before I went up there. And also, actually, when I was doing ski patrolling, I had to chainsaw trees sometimes on the slopes, on the ski slopes. So I learned about chainsaws and generators and same with uh, tree planting generators and all that stuff. So for uh, cutting things, I just, I just, I read books. Actually, when I was growing up, we had this encyclopedia, the home, the home handyman encyclopedia. I don't know if you, it was my favorite, favorite encyclopedia. And it could have everything from building a windsurfer to building a shed or, and I would study it. And actually I put it out for my kids because I was the lucky one in my family that got this encyclopedia. And my kids, I was like, check it out. It's so awesome. Like, and at the time you couldn't buy some of these things, you know, everybody made everything. It felt like, you know, you couldn't just go to anywhere really and buy stuff. And so, especially on Pender, actually, maybe that was it. Just like have nothing around you and then you get really interested in in how to build it. Sure, right? yeah, yeah. But they were not as interested as I was. I really thought they'd be interested. Maybe in time, who knows? But maybe so, in time, yeah. So having that encyclopedia sounds like it was pretty pivotal. Yeah, the encyclopedia, yeah. my family... Uh, my, my uncle was a carver. Yeah. Just being surrounded, you know, steeping in that sort of thing. Really. Even if you don't know you're learning, you are. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. So back to Savory Island, you, it took you a month to uh, do the foundation. It took me a month to do the foundation. It was so exhausting. <laughs> and I was so scared because uh, there was nobody on the island at the time because it was not the summertime yet still because uh, May, June, it was the month of June that I was doing the foundation. And there was a guy on the island who told me it should look like oatmeal, the concrete, like when I mix mm -hmm. the water in. <laughs> and I brought all the concrete in that budget rented truck, bags of concrete. <laughs> Plus the stove, like the wood stove was old, like one of those old Heartland stoves. It was huge, heavy, heavy stoves. And when I had to put the main ridge beam up, I got my neighbor to come up because I was using a ladder to like lift on one side and then lift on the other side to get the ridge beam in. And then actually some friends from ski patrolling came up to help me lift the walls. And uh, I use logs for the foundation. Like it's, it's still standing. And in fact, the guy I sold it to is living in it and he's been living in it for years and he loves it. Wow. And I go up and visit him every, <laughs> when I go up there because we go every year now, but we don't have a place there. We just go to stay at the various people I met while building and living there. Because I graduated from my undergrad using solar panels, like typing, because I, I left all of my courses that were electives to the very, very end. Mm -hmm. And I had this huge Mac, like huge Mac, oval, you know, oval back. And I had it hooked up to my solar panels and I'd type all my essays. And um, then I take the water taxi to Lund and mail them to SFU. <laughs> and that's how I graduated. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, how long did it take for you to complete this 600 square foot? Uh... It took me till September because I had to, because I had to go back to school. And I worked 18 hour days. Like I worked really long hours. Wow. Yeah. And so you're doing this, it sounds like basically by yourself, except with a little bit of help along the way. Yeah, the beginning part was by myself. And then um, as people found out that there there was more, like it was actually happening, maybe people didn't think, I, maybe I didn't invite anybody at first. So for the first month and a half, nobody was there. And then friends would kind of visit and I'd be like, hey, you can help me lift this thing or hey, you can, you know, do this or that. And so near the end, my sister came up when I was putting the roof up, which was really handy, like putting the metal roof on. That mm -hmm. was really handy. And then my dad came up and and my boyfriend came back from working up north and helped to help do all the siding, the shingle siding. So I had help. It wasn't like I, I'd like to say that I, you know, did it all in isolation, but it's not true because I asked neighbors, you know, questions. And actually I met this, some people would say, you have to go check out this guy. He's built this amazing place down the road. And and so I go down and I check out other people's houses. And actually one of them is like one of my closest friends, uh, Tom and Hella. And they're now in their 70s. And I, they built the most amazing cabin on Savory Island. And so people said, you got to go check. You got to go check it out. And so I went down there and, and met them. They they never came to my house, actually. But I, <laughs> I did go to theirs. And... Uh, and they gave me lots of information and a couple old windows, you know, that they weren't using anymore and stuff like that. So, I, yeah, there's kind of a community that I drew on there. During this process, you're learning more about how to build. But in the meantime, what are you learning about yourself? Um, I think that I think anybody can build. It just takes time and, and interest. You know, it's not 
it's not that complicated. I mean, I I now know who to hire. Like I did that all all essentially myself, like all the finishing and everything like that. But now I actually hire really good people to do things because I know my limits. So at the time I didn't, I, I mean, it, it was funky and cool and that that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I've, I'm now older, I'm now more particular about little things, which is kind of sad actually. Is it? I don't know. Like it was a funky cabin and this, it's cool having something funky too. It is, but I don't know. It means that you care, right? If you're more particular, it means like you, you care, you care a little bit more, right? You, yeah. You know, you know, it can be done better yeah yeah you know what's possible and then then you and you get reminded of things I, I think when i sold it it was kind of there's a couple of reasons i sold it i owned it for 10 years and i would go up there and every time i went up there there was something to maintain because it was facing south and so it would get the southeast release and i'd find like my gutter 40 feet in the forest and i'd have to like <laughs> reattach it or you know but also i would look around and i would see the mistakes i made and that that kind of bugged me, so it was it was time to sell. To me, and I don't know if this is accurate or not. That like that period of time between May and September seems like a, like a big period of growth in one's life. I would think like taking on a project like that. Did you see it that way, or was it just like no, this is just something that I was doing? And it well, it turned out to be more work than I thought it would be, and and it was it was there was many challenges, and yeah, I really grew up during that time. I learned a lot, a lot about communities, small communities, and that, that's like a whole other podcast, <laughs> <laughs> so we won't even get into that, okay. um, and about perseverance and what you can do with very, very little money, and I, I gained a certain level of confidence that I don't think I had before that, so that it was really positive. It was, yeah, it was really, really awesome, and then people started visiting me once I had a cabin, like you know, on the ocean, people visit. Yeah, you get friends. You get friends. Yep, you totally get yeah. friends. What? <laughs> yeah. Sandy beaches by the ocean. Well, and funky cabin. Count me in. Yeah, not many. See, everybody has their own homes now, so it's less less like, hey, I'm gonna come visit you. Yeah, you know. But, but when you're in your twenties, it's a very desirable. That's right. Time. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> you uh, you go back to school in September. What uh, what happens from there? Uh, so then I started feeling interested in, um, so I didn't have solar panels at that point. Once I built, it was just powerless. (laughs) I had a Paloma and I would bring water over from my neighbors. I didn't even have water. (laughs) Like, and there's no building. There is a building code everywhere in BC. Like if you aren't, you have to apply it. You have to adhere to the BC building code. But if you're not inspected, nobody really does it. So. I uh, didn't have water, and I had an outhouse, <laughs> so I didn't have septic, but I had a cabin and no power. So then I went back to school, and I went back to ski patrolling, and I think I went probably tree planting again in the summer, and um, I went a few more years, and then that's when I got the Helen Pitt Award, so then I bought the solar panels and then graduated, but I was starting to get interested in architecture. Because people were saying, your work is so architectural when I was doing art, my art, my sculptures. And so I also applied, I applied to music school because that's what I thought I was totally doing after art school <laughs> was, was music. Why not? Just do all the arts. <laughs> and uh, 
I th- I heard that it's really difficult to get into architecture school. So I just assumed I wouldn't get in because they said, just assume you won't get in the first year. But then I did get in because they're like, what? This person's already built a house. <laughs> like my portfolio had, you know, all my art stuff and plus the cabin that I had built. So, so I got in. So then I didn't do music school. Okay. Which That's, is like uh, bittersweet. Yeah. Bittersweet, but pretty, pretty amazing though. Right. Like you were surprised. I imagine if everybody's telling you, you're not going to get in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was surprised. There was like hundreds of applicants and 35 or 30 people get in. So I was really lucky. So which school was this? This was uh, at UBC. And actually, oh, I know why. I was like, how did I graduate from SFU? So I hadn't actually graduated from SFU yet when I got in, accepted. So they're like, well, you have to finish all your final courses. Mm-hmm. So I had, to, I had to go to summer school that year. And that's where I was up on, on Savory. Handing in the work, okay, <clears throat> when right. you're like going into Lund. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a point of curiosity as well, too, because when you were being told that your artwork that you were making, the sculptures were very uh, architectural, what were some of the sculptures that you were making? Um, I guess it's more that they were larger scale. I don't know why they said architect. Maybe my drawings were architectural. I don't know. I just remember one person saying, your work is so architectural. And then when I went into architecture school, they're, they're like, your work is so artsy. And I was like, oh, I don't fit in anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but so you're making large scale projects. Yeah, they, they were just large sculptures. And I did some paintings and some photography, but sculptures, I, I, I it wasn't even that I made that choice. I just started doing them. It just... I don't know. And I, I, there was a woodworking studio there too. So I guess I dabbled with wood. I don't know. I, I can't, I don't know the exact piece that somebody said that to, but. That, that's okay. No worries. So you get into, uh, you take your first year of uh, architectural school in UBC and uh, did it resonate with you? Was it something that you were like, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be? Yeah, it was amazing. And the, the people that I went to school with were amazing. And it was a very tight, tight community, which I didn't have so much in art school because I was sporty and everybody in art school was wearing black and, and really into art. Like they, I was into art. I liked do, making art, but I had this whole other life where I was ski patrolling and tree planting and, and not going to coffee shops and talking about art, you know? And, and I also really didn't believe that art, I mean, for me, I, I felt like I did art as therapy. And I didn't want to tell or like talk in front of people about my art so much, but you had to talk in art school about art. And it was always talking about art, which I think is, can be cool and people can do that. <laughs> but I wasn't really, I was just into producing art and then moving on to the next art thing. Oh, I know. I remember maybe the one that was architectural is that <laughs> this is going to sound horrible. I made this dinner table. Uh, it's like welded because when I was working in the maintenance area at, Cypress Mountain. Uh, I learned how to weld by this this guy, this old old. Well, he just basically gave me the welding thing and was like, "Do it." <laughs> <laughs> and I had like this horrible headache afterwards because I could never see, you know. Um, and so the blue light was destroying my eyes and my brain. Anyways, but I made all these flag holders, and I was thinking during the Olympics, I wondered if any of them collapsed on people, like they were like metal cl- flag holders. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't hear of any disaster during the olympics of flags landing on people so that's good but so i made this dining dining table 
And it was with chairs and it had this layer in it that I, I melted lead. <laughs> this is going to sound. So lead, if it gets heated over a certain temperature, actually oxidizes and turns white and it's highly toxic. So lead, lead is really a scary thing. So I wanted it to be under the glass of the, di- of the table that you ate off of. So it's this kind of juxtaposition of something that's like highly toxic and you're eating. <laughs> I have no idea what, like I was so excited about this idea. And then I, I melted into the molten lead like cutlery. I, it was. <laughs> Badass. I don't even know why. I, I don't have this anymore. It was like, it went back to the uh, scrap metal. <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe that was kind of architectural. It was kind of building like. Yeah. It, was, it weighed like 500 pounds. What? Well, it was lead. Okay. It was a lead table. All right. Yeah. Highly toxic <laughs> and really weighty. But yeah. I talked to some doctors before making this because yeah. I, and they said, you know what? There's so many other toxins that are way worse. But the thing is, lead has, has a huge history. Like royalty used to put, oxidize it, turn it pure white and put it on their face so that they looked really white or something like that. And it made them crazy. Like it, it literally caused them to go crazy. Yeah, I've lead heard this poisoning. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just thought the history of lead was really interesting, <laughs> and I would make a table about it. <laughs> I love the idea that you say about a juxtaposition about having something so incredibly toxic uh, underneath, you know, like a plate that you have where you're eating food off of. That's um, it's some- weird. I, when I think about it now, it's just like plain weird. I don't know why I did it. I kind of want one now. I kind of want well. like. <laughs> Sounds like a lovely thing to have. It's okay. it's not. I got rid of it. <laughs> it was just like, what was I thinking? Anyways, uh, maybe somebody out there is going to hear this podcast and then and then uh, jump on board and make something <laughs> like that, or maybe not. More than likely, not. Not. Uh, so, so uh, you were using art as a form of therapy. You said during art school. Yeah. Well, some of it. I I made. Oh, I also made this couch out of drums. Like I made. So I actually. Oh, I don't even know how I found like a deer was hit by a car and then I skinned it and then I buried the, the the skin in the ground and did all the salting and everything like that. And then there was like BC Hydro was taking down this rotten tree that had a hole in the middle of it. And I made all these drums that became a, a couch that you could like drum on. Like, it was like, <laughs> and then I made, then I just went down this whole line of, of creating like a harp. That was a chair. The back of the chair was actually a harp, and <laughs> like <laughs> it was like a, awesome. it was a whole furniture line of musical furniture. <clears throat> wow! And then I made a film because I was also in film. I did film at SFU and video production, and so I, then I started making films about about instruments and and construction for some reason. Anyways, it's just <laughs> using. Anyways, I can't even. I wouldn't. I made all the instruments, and then I did all of the. Uh, like they were weird instruments. Like I invented instruments made out of like copper tubes and strings and like everything. And then I would uh, do the sound for all of my movies. With those instruments? With those instruments. Okay. And what were the movies about? But that's not very architectural, is that? No, but this is super interesting. (laughs) So what were you making movies about? Well, I made one called Wood and Water, which was about my great grandfather, who this is a good coming back to Pender Island. Yeah. Uh, he was born here and he was a luthier and he was a captain 
And so he he actually ran the SIPAC, which was the first ferry between Salt Spring and uh, maybe Victoria, maybe Vancouver. I'm not too sure. The SIPAC, though. Um, he did like some summer shifts over on Salt Spring. Okay. Running, running the ferry there. And, but he, yeah, so it was about him making musical instruments, one of the films. And then I made a film about a guy who they say that one leg is shorter than the other. And so wherever you start in life, you'll come back to where you once started. So it's kind of like salmon. And so it's the story about this guy who's like sick of, of being in society. And so he leaves society and goes on this big, huge journey. And I filmed it like up on Garibaldi and in this like cavern and in a cave and, and down Cypress Creek, which is a really beautiful creek if you can ever walk that creek. And there's these pools and stuff like that. And he's so, and he comes all the way back. And I did, then did all this animation. Like I got it really into animation. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I did this animation where it was panning out from where he was. Like, so the beginning part is all film. Mm-hmm. You know, I filmed it all. And then the last part is all this animation where you're coming out from where he is. And you can see that he's actually just in this one little green vein in the middle of the city. So he's come back to where he left. And uh, yeah, anyways, so I did these wild experimental other films about billboards and about... Anyways, <laughs> I did quite a few films. That's super cool. And so you're making the soundtrack to these films with instruments. With that instruments that I made, yeah. <laughs> Ever since your creativity is off the charts. <laughs> Seriously, what? <laughs> oh my gosh. This is uh, mind-boggling. So then when you are in your first year of architecture school and then you're, you're finding as if like uh, there's a community there for you that wasn't necessarily a community that you were finding in art school. Yeah, yeah. Like in film, in the film and video, I had a few, you know, few friends. Actually, one of them, his, I don't know if I should say it. anyways, but his name was Bart Simpson. Bartholomew Simpson, <laughs> we just laughed, but he actually still does like films and various things now. Uh, I just thought that was funny. It is funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's not very many people named Bart Simpson out there. But, no, yeah. no. Yeah. In architecture school, I, f- I found some really fast friends and we, and we, uh, I did a studies abroad, which was in Athens, Greece with some of these people and did Hornby Island elder housing where we did design build and on Hornby. So we went, we did traveling together and it was such an intense program that we <clears throat> were there all night. Like we'd sleep under our drafting table sometimes. It just was, you, you lived architecture. And it was actually awesome and sort of dysfunctional. Why were you guys sleeping underneath the drafting tables? Because you're working that you're hard. Because you're working that hard. Yeah. Yeah. Like my teacher, uh, Patricia Patkow, who's ama- amazing. And I also, I had n- numerous amazing teachers, profs in architecture school, but she would wear scissors around her neck, like a, as a, instead of a necklace, there'd yeah. be scissors yeah. and you would work so hard on a model and you'd think, oh, this is so good. This is great. And then she'd come and she'd be like, yeah. And then she'd start like, like maybe you want to cut this out or maybe <laughs> like and deconstructing it, Yeah, you know, and turning it upside down, which is cool because she didn't want you to get attached to your one idea. Like there's so many ideas. And so in architecture school, I didn't learn a lot about practical things in terms of 
because there's codes, different codes everywhere, and there's different types of building construction everywhere in the world, they didn't focus on that. They they really focused on creative process. And um, I mean, we did have process and practice, which was about law and how you couldn't get sued and 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 all the horrible things about what can happen in architecture. Mm-hmm. And then there was also environmental stuff, which is all about building envelopes and stuff like that. So we did do some technical courses, but for the most part, studio, which was the biggest course uh, that you had in every semester, was about creative process. And it was amazing. And we'd have critiques and the critiques would be brutal, like just brutal. Like you people would be crying and you hadn't slept in days and you're presenting these things and you only had a limited amount of time to you know, create something, but also the most creative things I've ever seen came out of that. So it was slightly dysfunctional in that I got out and then I haven't been able to stop like working that hard. Although I guess in retrospect from our conversation, I did work hard before, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it kind of amped it up to the next level. Yeah. It's funny. I was just having, I can't shake the image of a teacher wearing some scissors around her neck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like I'd, I'd be like dreading her coming with a like scissors like no what is she gonna do but but you actually found it to be helpful like the fact it was really was- helpful yeah because you don't get attached to you don't get attached to one idea which is really important because you're supposed to be doing designing like not just design but designing so you are trying to take something to the next to the next to the next to the next level and if you're attached to the first thing you'll never get to that next level. And so that's what's great. That That's what I learned in architecture school. Well, let's dig into that for a little bit because for myself and I think for people listening might not have enough of a foothold to really quite understand. So in terms of uh, designing, like what sort of things were you designing and how were you specifically refining them during the time that you were going to school? So in first year, we mainly, things were fairly s- simple uh, because you're learning the basics. You're learning how to draw and communicate in that language of architecture. And then after that, we would be given such amazing projects that you would never get now. I mean, if you got them, they would be so lucky. They 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 allowed you to be so creative, like so, so, so creative. And they, oh man, there's just so many fun projects in, in architecture school. We had to like design seawalls or a museum of uh, industrial artifacts. That was a really fun one. And that one, that one was so fun. It was just off this Canby Street Bridge. And industry couldn't exist without agriculture. So I had a big, massive wheat field just off Canby Street Bridge. And then kind of these buried buildings and this, there was a, before Olympic Village and all that stuff, there was railway tracks that went through that area. And so I created this timeline of different inventions throughout the year that you could walk down like along where the tri- where the train was and you could see different inventions as they evolved and then the the seawall i had it was it was angled so that the water would come like it would be very narrow when the when the tide was high and it would be really wide because it was slightly angled <laughs> so uh so i loved putting people in precarious positions like kind of taking people on a journey was really important to me. And then my master's thesis was an environmental ski resort and it had ice walls that changed summer to winter, you know, like it it was continually changing based on the weather. There was a memorial built in the top of it because I was from, for Cyprus, the design that I did. And uh, I thought the most haunting thing is going into an abandoned building 
And a lot of people died on the mountain and I thought that they should be honored. So I had this build on the top of this tea house that was on the top of the mountain. It doesn't exist. This is just in imaginary land. Totally, yeah. Um, there was just kind of, a, it looked like an abandoned cabin at the top and it had four slits in the walls in each direction and a big stone bowl in the middle and <clears throat> inverted roof. And as the snow melted, it would drip into that bowl. That kind of dripping sound was very haunting. Mm. And then when the wind came, it would whistle and make a certain sound and send snow that would create a line on the floor. And then there was pictures of all the people that had passed. And, and in all my projects, I use lots of recycled materials. So I'd find places that they were demolishing, like the shipyards in North Vancouver. And I'd take note of all the different materials and then I'd incorporate them into the building. And uh, yeah, I just like buildings that are changing and that carry you through on a journey. That That's really important to me. Okay. So during... During school, you have these projects and like all, all these things that you're describing are theoretical. Like they, they weren't made into real things. They're projects and assignments that you're making designs for. Yeah, although they all could have been built. And actually, I even gave my, my master's thesis to Cypress Mountain and they they never replied. And I worked there for 12 years. I think they just thought, oh, it's just Everest. <laughs> She's like a ski patroller. Like, what, what does she know or something like that? And I, I thought it was perfect. I was, and I think I was giving it to them for free because I thought it's the, they're going to have the Olympics and it's supposed to be the greenest Olympics ever. And I studied everything to make it super environmental, the, all the designs I did. But during this time, <laughs> you're completing these assignments and you, you have these, uh, these ideas that- um, They're budgetless. Okay. And so- um, Except for one. One of our assignments was not budgetless, but- How hungry are you by the end of school to be like, I really want to start making things that are going to be made in the real world? Well, yeah, it was kind of, it's kind of slight let down because of course you get out and there's budgets mm -hmm. and people don't know you at all. And, and they haven't seen any of your stuff in architecture school. <laughs> like you can't show future clients like, and then this is when, you know, this- teeter-totter thing does you know do you know what I mean like people would be like ah yeah no <laughs> that's <laughs> not in this project so your artistic side like really got stimulated with the assignments that you were being given in yeah yeah they're school. really stimulating uh assignments for sure yeah and and I I've considered going back to teaching because like to teaching at UBC just because it's so fun to work with students and and the process is really good I, it has benefited me because I don't get attached to my work now anymore. And I really, the client is so important to me. And I know that some, as some architects and, and in the past and, and now don't care about the client, but I really do. And I feel like my whole drive is to try and link the land and the person in a creative way and also to help them see beyond what they could have imagined for their home or for their project because i've done more than homes yeah okay well let's jump into that with two feet here okay. so so <laughs> what you were just describing there about uh the situation about wanting to link individuals with something like very meaningful uh building wise in their lives so how did that philosophy wind up developing in your life uh, once you finish school well um, so I finished school and I actually immediately, while I was doing my master's thesis, I also was at BCIT 
and doing my peace officers training because I wanted to be a uh, park ranger. <laughs> and uh, I ended up because I also worked Coast Guard while I was in uh, for the summers doing architecture school. Okay. And and ski patrolling still in the winter. And I wanted to work up Garibaldi and I applied for the position, got the position, and then they contacted me and they said, hey, you have all this boating experience. Will you run with another guy, uh, the Nuwiti Ranger, it's like a boat, off Brooks Peninsula. You'll be the first park rangers in Brooks. And all you have to do is look for points of interest and take photographs of them. <laughs> and I mean, we had to make build out houses and stuff like that, but uh, which was kind of construction-y. Uh, and so I decided that's it. Cause I had stopped, I took a year off architecture school and built my parents design and built my parents house Whoa, okay. on South Pender. And they had bought it, bought that property actually off an architect. It was really, it's really beautiful property. So that whole year was also pivotal. I worked with Steve Wright cause he, he was the contractor and I worked with Kevin Marston and Pete Fennell. And it was the hottest summer of the entire, like, history of Pender or something like that. It was so hot. And yeah, so, but I ended up staying longer and working on the finishing and all of that stuff. So I'd already done a, a year of building in my architecture. And, and then also on Hornby Island, I did some building there. And then I just wanted to be, I, it was so intense doing my master's thesis that I just wanted to be in nature. So that's why I went to Brooks. But while I was at Brooks, my mom and dad, I guess, were taking calls from various builders saying, like, is Everest going to be doing built like design? Is she going to, she graduated from architecture school. Do you think she might be doing it? And so when I came back, I had jobs from, from Brooks and I got some pretty nice, amazing big jobs actually. And so I did those. And it was based on Pender Island? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I did a number and I met um, other amazing people like Pat Mundy and, Graham Stonebridge, who isn't here anymore, but, um, you know, really cool builders uh, that I still know now. So long, long time, like 25. Well, since working with Steve Wright, that was in 1996. And then I started getting jobs on Cortez. And one of my clients on Cortez actually lived in New York. And um, they asked me to come to New York and work for them in New York. So I, I did do that for years and years and years <laughs> really yeah okay so through a connection from cortez island they they owned property in new york state i guess or in, in new york's in manhattan and oh, brooklyn okay yeah how long were you living there for well let's see it was 2003 until 2008 or nine yeah well maybe before we get to that because in terms of the first jobs that you had and wanting to really have like a deep emphasis on people being able to like have a connection through the land or to the land through their house. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you were attempting to accomplish? Um, I think I didn't. Well, I had a really good mentor, which is Michael from Blue Sky Design, who's on Hornby. And he had a really interesting way of asking his clients questions, which I really appreciated. And I started using his kind of way of asking people questions. And then I learned to meditate. Uh, and so then I started meditating on land. I didn't tell anybody though, because I was kind of embarrassed that I was, I don't know why, but at the time I was embarrassed uh, 
that that's how I really fell and found connection to the land. But I did start to meditate and it was amazing. And I would get, I then I can't even remember how I got them to do this, but I started asking people to write narratives about, about their imagining themselves on the land and what their typical day was and winter to summer and uh, night to day and with a social with like by themselves or with people. And I would get them to write a narrative and some often I would, I don't, didn't want them to describe like, I want six foot overhangs on my roof. Like I don't want to know, or I want a craftsman style house. I don't want to know any of that. Right. I just want to know how they, how they'll feel. Is it light and airy? Is it cozy and warm? Is it, you know, those sort of things, those adjectives really help to create a space in your mind. And that, that's so much more genuine than I want a craftsman style house or I want my house to be in a magazine or I want, you know, I want, I want, I want. It's more like, I feel like this when I'm walking through this space and I, I feel like this when I wake up. And <clears throat> that to me, that actually forms the image. And then if I sit on the land after I've read their narrative and I meditate, I just feel like I'm just bringing the two together. And I tell people, don't try and solve anything because that's why you've hired me, presumably, <laughs> is that you can have the biggest challenge you've ever imagined. Uh, but that's my goal is to help kind of marry you in the land and and have you feel the way you want to feel. That sounds like a massive undertaking. And yet the way you're describing it, it sounds like it was the easiest way for you to go about doing things. It's way It's way easier than being like, do you want a two door fridge do you want <laughs> you know those things are just pieces and they don't they make up the whole but they don't make up the soul of the whole kind of thing yeah so i think for people to feel at home and i to me i wherever i go i always want people to feel at home or comfortable and i don't know if it's because i always felt comfortable and at home actually wherever i was and I, I, it's not because of necessarily because of things I want are there. It's, it's because of how I felt in that space, you know, inspired or I don't know. This is, this is getting hard to describe, but I, that's okay. You can take your time. I feel like, uh, it's been a life journey of wanting people to feel inspired and at home and comfortable. That's just, I, yeah, I just want them to feel comfortable. I just had a meeting the other day with clients that I had 20 years ago. And then now it's 20 years later, their house was quite large at the time. And I, I said, you might be calling me 20 years from now, you know, maybe, maybe not, but they are building a smaller home and we sat on the land. I, I just with them. And I just imagined their whole house, like just sitting, being grounded on the land I, I had already come up with a whole bunch of concepts because I went and sat and did my, what I call the site sit, where I sit there and I stay there for 12 to 24 to 48 hours, depending on how far I get. My goodness. And that's why I have my Volkswagen van, Goldie, is that we, we go to the site and we, I just sit there and I measure and I use twigs. I don't actually do anything very formal. Like I don't do heavy duty drawings. I used to because I felt obligated to because that was what I was hired to do. But as I'm old, getting older now, I realize that all the power is in the imagination, riding the imagination for as long as possible. 
And then, because it's so fluid and you can let ideas come and go much easier than if you've done this perfect drawing that you want to see built. And also when people see drawings, they're like, oh, that's what you're building. That's what we're going to do. Oh, that's perfect. Whereas when you have ideas and you talk about the ideas on the site with the client, like, because they're like, can we see some, some drawings? And I had done some sketches, but they were really for my own, for my own process. And I thought I could show them sketches to kind of justify, yes, I've been to the site and I've done these things, but I, I was kind of experimenting with them. They didn't know that, but I, I thought I'm not going to show them the sketches. I'm just going to start talking to them about what I sketched so that it's still in their mind. And uh, it's so they'll be more willing to let it come and go and flow. And we had the best conversation. I, and, and I just felt like next level design process stuff was happening. Was that answering your question? <laughs> uh, very much so, but there's more I want to ask, actually. Okay. So first off, you are asked to do a design for a home, and then you'll go to the lot, the land that the house is going to be built on and spend anywhere from half a day to two full days just being there. Mm -hmm. What goes on during that time for you? Um. Well, usually it's, it starts off normal and then it becomes a bit discombobulated because I'm so into the project <laughs> that I kind of get, and I'm in and out of like meditation and, and playing with twigs. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like a wild trip, but it's not. It's just, it's just me exploring ideas. Like maybe I'll find a leaf that's curled a certain way and I think, oh, that's so cool. That maybe that could be the entrance, you know? Uh, and so I want to come in and see sort of a wall there that's, you know, that's kind of cascading down or I just find things on the land and to make these things. I don't, br I used to bring stuff with me and the fewer things I have, the better, almost even fasting is better. Like just really letting things just flow. It's all about flow at this point. Nice. Are you taking notes at this time or is it mainly just uh, you're memorizing or you're letting things sort of come and go? It's mainly memorizing, although sometimes just because I don't want to go back to the site again and because I'm there and it's practical, I'll take a whole bunch of measurements of the site and where the trees are. I have like, I have a building level at like a building, uh, sorry, a builder's site. I can't remember what it's called now. Isn't that funny? Anyways, to do surveying, I can kind of do a basic survey. It's not a legal survey. It's just get some basic topographical things where I just like lean my my measuring stick against a tree and then look through the scope and see what the height change is. Cause that's very critical mm -hmm. in order to make the building feel like it's really connected to the land and not dominating. Or, you know, when we go to actually do the drawings, I'm like, Ooh, that wall's really tall because <laughs> I didn't measure it properly. So there are some practical things I do while in there. I orientation, I'm always studying the sun, noting where the sun is. I won't work for anybody who hasn't had their property for a year because I think it's really important to appreciate and understand the property over a whole, all four seasons. Sure, yeah. And actually, I have this whole list of things. People think they're interviewing me, but I'm interviewing them, and I have a whole list of questions. And I'm not going to say them on here in case it's a future client, because then I won't know. They could, like, just answer correctly, and then I would say, yeah, I want to work for you, but maybe I don't. Um, <laughs> but just things, well, now I can't even give examples. But anyways, just... I, to know if they're open to creative process, basically questions along that line. And this is important to you 
Because when people have, it's almost like a Buddhist thing. When people have attachment to things, then there's suffering in the future <laughs> because they can't let go of certain attachments. So I like to work with people who are open to the creative process. I've had people who say, you know, I just want a house that's in a magazine and and I eventually say, I just can't, I man, like that's, if it gets in a magazine, sure, that's fine, but that's not why we're building this, this place, you know? So I want people to understand the land and not just build something that, that they might, might even sell because they, it wasn't really for them. It was for their image, an image of them. Yeah. I don't know if that's it. You know, no, definitely. And so you're really, it sounds to me what you're saying, you're really attempting to create something that is going to be in harmony with the individual on a deeper level than they're maybe uh, aware of at the first meeting or like when they hire you. It sounds like you're really attempting to strive for something quite deep. Yeah, I mean, as so much as solid materials can be, you know, like like there's there's certain limits to the materiality and codes and everything like that. But yeah, I want I want people to go on a bit of a journey, I guess, because a, a building has a huge environmental impact on the land. And I would say twenty five to thirty percent of the people I talk out of building. Really? Yeah. And I don't advertise, so it's all word of mouth. <laughs> and although I just put an ad in recently to a phone book. But anyways, <laughs> I'm kind of nervous. I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But um, so people come and, and have a general sense of who I am. And maybe it's been an old client. So they have, I didn't do that at first. But um, now I, I feel like it's pretty important that people understand who I am. And I'm not ashamed to say my process anymore. I used to be. Because I thought, oh, they're not going to want to hire somebody that just wants to go and sit on the site and meditate and ask them to write narratives. But it's it's my process. So <laughs> if it's it gets the best result, I find, by doing that process. So uh, that's what I'm going to do. How, how did this uh, unfold in the beginning for you? Because I would think that there was probably like a initial phase where you were you were experimenting and trying different things. But... You know, in terms of reaching the tipping point where you're like, this is how I got to do this. Like, uh, how far into your career did it take for you to get to that point? Well, I I actually worked for a client. Well, the client that I'm working now with, actually, who the particular type of architecture is Tepatravedic architecture. And, I'm and sorry, which kind? Tepatravedic. Okay. So, or Vedic, or um, architecture. So... I don't know if you've ever heard of Ayurvedic medicine. Yes. Yes. It's this, it's it's like a it's the architectural form of their medicine. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and so they the, and they're heavy meditators. And so I actually couldn't work on the project until I learned to meditate. And I was also working on another, actually, even before that client. Sorry, I should backtrack in case they're listening. <laughs> um I Worked for an inventor doing it, working, making inventions. This was, I'm out of architecture school. Yeah. And weirdly, I met this person at an Indian smorgasbord in, in Vancouver and just made small talk because I noticed that the vest he was wearing was from Salt Spring. 
and 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 then we just started talking and then I was like, oh, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm an inventor. And I was like, that's cool. That's what I've always wanted to do. Like if I could pick any anything to do, actually, I love architecture, but I would be an inventor. That would be it. And a lot of my work has inventions in it. So I think, I guess I could be, <laughs> uh, or maybe I am and I don't know it. But uh, so he said, I started working on an invention with him and, and he's a, he actually just won the inventors, like some sort of a major inventing thing for Canada. This is going to sound so dumb because it's like some special prize for all of Canada for ingenuity. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, he, he invented the Bambi bucket. It's like the bucket that uh, lifts water out of, um, out of the lakes mm -hmm. and then can put fires out. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyways, we ended up working on an invention together over a number of years and working with engineers. It was really cool. I signed a non-disclosure, so I don't know how much I can say other than I did that. <laughs> oh, uh, and part of the process was for me to do, to learn how to meditate in, in order for me to be a part of this. Wow. Yeah. And it was incredible. It was like, I really benefited from meditation. I didn't know I would. Because I kind of thought, oh, other people do meditation, not not me, you know. Uh, but then, and so then I would subtly do meditation, like, it wasn't even a part of my process. But then I was just doing my meditation, because like as a part of daily practice while I was doing my sight sits. And I found that I was just so much more creative and connected to the land when I was meditating on the land. So that's how that <laughs> process came about. and then. The what what me and my my business partner my business partner she does interior design mm -hmm. and uh, and I do the structure part of it but um, we we call it like the manifesto for hiring a client <laughs> so we have all you know the list so we just would keep adding to it what we found we we reflect on the projects we had done and which ones were successful and which ones were challenging because there's been some challenging projects and why were they challenging. And that's how we kind of created this little manifesto for ourselves that that we live by. So it's it's been a evolution of a of process. It, it didn't just happen. Yeah, of course, of course. Like, like anything, you know, things evolve and take time to uh, take shape. You you mentioned that when you're on the land, you'll wind up seeing certain things, and you actually said like the curve of a leaf will give you an idea, right? I know that through my own experience with uh, just daydreaming, you know, like mm. uh, uh, I was actually doing it before you came over. I was like, <laughs> oh, I really need to actually just ground down. I was, it was a busy day, a lot of thoughts. And for 15 minutes, I just had a wonderful time just having a, a lovely little daydream, looking at different uh, features of the house that, you know, we're in right now, my wife's and my house and, it was just so lovely. And so I like I, I personally have really benefited a lot from spending ample amounts of time in the past, not recent, but in the uh, in the past daydreaming. And I feel like that time is so important. And my life is actually lacking a bit because mm. I haven't been putting that effort in. Right. But the, the question I have for you is that in terms of when you come across something that you see, whether it be a curved leaf, like you said, or something else that's on the land, what 
happens to you internally that makes you decide this is the right idea. This is this is like what works. Can can you describe like the sort of the the, the process of addition and subtraction of ideas that happens within you? Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll I'll touch on that point, and then I want to go back to your point about daydreaming because that's really interesting, and it reminded me of something. It's it's interesting when you really start thinking about why you are where you are now. So. Usually things get firmer, like more solid, because there's a timeline, <laughs> basically. Because I could just live in imaginary land all the time. Uh, so usually it's practical reasons that that it, it it's like, okay, we got to just commit to this idea, you know. Um, but going back to your, that's pro- probably not the full answer you wanted, but I'm going to want to go back to the daydream because I think that's really interesting uh, because... I thought, oh, yeah, when I was in architecture school, I had to work ski patrolling and I could work from 3 p.m. until 11 p.m. because they did night skiing. And sometimes I go up there and it's like literally pouring rain and you're on the chairlift and it's sideways. There's nobody else on the hill, but you have to keep riding the chairlift up and down. And I, and that, the chairlift ride is about 10 to 12 minutes. And in that time, you're sitting there, you've got your, your hood on and you're going up. And you kind of get into this daydreamy kind of state. And I would leave architecture school. People are at their drafting tables. And I go to work because I had to work full time. I didn't have a student loan or anything. So I would work a full eight hour shift. And I get back at midnight to the school because I go to the school, not home. And everybody would still be in the same position. And I'd had physical exercise and because I think there's this flow state, right, that you can get in where you're doing physical exercise, but it's also a mental thing where you can get into a flow state for design. And I'd have everything worked out by the time I got back. Like I'd be stuck on something and I'd be like, God, I gotta go, I gotta go to work, you know, and I'd go to work. And in work, as I was riding the chairlift, you go over those round pulley things, you know, where the cable goes over, you know, and you get make to the next tower, tower. And that would kind of like jostle me. And then I'd go into a new daydream. I, I, I remember now. And I, so I, the physical exercise, mm-hmm. the daydreaming, breaking that heavy concentration was key to me. Like you can't just sit there. If you're at all getting stuck a little bit, you have to walk. So even when I do my sight sits, I don't just sit there. I sit and then I walk the land. And one of the things I walk the land doing is actually eliminating all the possibilities. I had this one project that was on a private island off of Gabriola and the guy had owned the island for quite a while and he said, I need I need a design done for this place, a, a new house point because they was going to build a house at new house point. And I went there and I said, do you mind if we go for a walk? Like, you know, walk around the island because I, I was like, I haven't been to this island. I don't know much about it. So he's like, yeah, but we're building on New House Point, you know, like that's, <laughs> and so we walked around, walked around, and then there was this tree that had gone kind of fallen down and was part way up. And one of his things is like, I wanted to see the dock where his boat was. He wanted to see the dock, but he also wanted to see the point. And we climbed up this log and I had this amazing view. You could see down to the dock because the only problem with New House Point was you couldn't see the dock. You could see the point and you could see the dock. And it's because we climbed this tree, like we shimmied up this tree. And I was like, this is a cool spot. And he's like, I've never been here. 
because it was in the for it was like in the forest and um he still hasn't built anything which is great because actually i love it when people don't build but uh <laughs> but it it was neat to go on that journey to to really get to know the land and not just assume that the place that you think you should build on is the place to build on and that was a physical exercise and then kind of sitting on this log that had fallen down and kind of daydreaming you know all these things are really important instead of putting pen to paper eliminating things so so that's what you're saying like getting things off the table as much as on the table yeah totally and that's really great to hear that you like this lesson that you learned in school that like you've been applying for the last 25 plus years <laughs> like recognizing that the importance of like getting away from the table and moving is like pivotal to, pivotal yeah yeah there's this guy who wrote this book steal like an artist have you ever read that uh no oh it's such a good book and he talks about how in his studio he has an analog side and a digital side mm -hmm. and he'll move from analog to digital like it but you can never cross like they can't contaminate each other like they don't and i kind of thought that was pretty pretty neat that i mean that's a very slow physical move <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, that's not like getting physical exercise. Yeah, yeah. But it's two different ways of thinking. Sure. And so I think it's also about that, creating new ways of seeing the problem, you know, you know, or not problem, it's actually opportunity. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, here you have, you own a piece of land, like what an opportunity, right, from day one. And what do you want to do with that land? It's huge responsibility. So walking it and taking your time is important. When you say it's a huge responsibility, what informs that? Well, you're sometimes taking down trees. So you're you're kind of taking over a space that has never had anybody in it before, other than tree. Well, not anybody. There's tons of buddies, but they're <laughs> they're not human human form. And that's that's a, yeah, it's a huge responsibility. I just finished listening to Braiding Wheatgrass or Waiting, not Wheatgrass, Sweetgrass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you read that? I haven't, but I'm familiar with the book for sure. Okay. Because one of the things that she says in that book is that it's not that we have a problem with nature. It's that we we don't have a good relationship with with everything that we're interacting with it's kind of that's not that's not what it is i might call you about what it is okay fair enough yeah. and maybe you can do an addendum like <laughs> ever want me to add because <laughs> for some reason it, it's it's that our relationship with nature has been truncated by so much humanness that sometimes we forget how important it is to to really observe what's there before we impact it and um because in architecture school, my whole focus was environmental design. And it's funny because everybody thought I was a hippie in architecture school. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years and now everybody's, you know, starting to con be concerned about this. Everybody's like, hey, Everest, you know, when you were doing your master's thesis, like, what? Like, can you send me to give me some examples of this? And and so I, I know that I was true to my heart the whole time. And that was that was good. But I, I we're in, I'm in a in an industry that's really not awesome. It's a huge embodied energy to building a house or any building, any structure. And that's why I feel like if it's a, if it's a building that people feel like, wow, this is incredible, then it's kind of like a Japanese temple where they, they survive 
hundreds of years because people know that thought has been put into it. And to me, that's really important. If you're going to build something, build it with so much love that nobody can destroy it. You know? Wow. And then it's sustainable because it has a much longer life. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've worked for clients who say, I want a 200-year house. Most people are like, well, I'm going to die in you know, 40 years, 50 years, or 20 years or whatever. doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was really cool that they wanted to build a 200-year house. I think that's a great challenge. What, what sort of decisions do you have to make if you're attempting to build something that would last that long versus something that would last a quarter of that time? Well, ironically, using a lot of natural, like stone for your outdoor, you know, because decks just rot, considering obviously like big overhangs if you're in this kind of climate that we're in right now. Your envelope, which is a big, that's a big, big topic that I, we, we wouldn't be another podcast again. Um, but yeah, that's really that's a really that's a really hard one to talk no, about. But yeah, it sounds like too much. That's yeah. a big question. I was yeah, like, whoa! Yeah. I was like, <laughs> should I start talking about building envelopes? Because <laughs> <laughs> probably not. No. Um, to get back into again speaking about the land, because because I just think this is so uh, unique and uh, wonderful to hear about. It. I'm just filled with questions about it, and that you did say earlier that you're happy when people choose not to build. And is that because that's a win for the land in a way, because then it's not going to be disrupted and it will be able to exist as it was. Like, why do you have that, uh, that thought that you're happy when people don't build? Well, again, the older I get, the more I see the impacts of people's decisions and uh, if somebody's not ready to to really engage in a process, then then it's it's not going to be successful. <clears throat> it's a, they're really big projects, and I do prefer the land over any built environment. You know the trees and all the rest of it. I, I think if you can honor those trees in a certain way, or if you can build in an area that doesn't have a lot of impact. That's okay too. I mean, we we exist on this land and we have to build for shelter. So it's kind of a necessary evil, but uh I, I definitely don't want to work with people who who are not sure if they want to build totally. Like I kind of push people to like, well, it's really expensive and it's a really long process. And, you know, do you really know what you want? Because a lot of people don't some people do some people do but a lot of people don't and that's dangerous just to be like yeah i think i'll try this it's like a big thing to do <laughs> that's just like a whim so i i, I don't know I, and sometimes people don't want to hear that and they may be irritated by me questioning and slowing down the process i tend to slow down the design part because once you have an idea that you think you're going to build for sure it's quite quick after that but i just want to make sure and then maybe that's architecture school again, just kind of drawing out <laughs> the design process just to really make sure, well, again, that same teacher that had the scissors, she mm -hmm. said, how do you know where the middle of the string is until you found the two ends? And I thought that was really interesting because paper is far a far lesser resource than 
lumber, right? Like drawing something and having to crumple it up or turn it into your fire starter is a lot less impact than building it and being like, oh, that's not what I imagined. And then rebuilding it or taking it apart. Like there's a lot of situations where clients, not it hasn't happened to me, but to other people where the people will be building and the, the people haven't had the uh, the visualization to understand what they're actually building. And then they have to rebuild and rebuild and rebuild, you know, to get what they want. And that should really be happening in the design stage, not full scale. So I try and prolong the design stage a little bit longer than sometimes people are comfortable with just to make sure that it's not going to be torn down partway through or rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Or renoed a year or two from, like, do you know what I mean? That's just, uh, it's so, so wasteful. But it sounds like that uh, with with all the, like, the, the questions and <laughs> investment of time and energy and creativity that you put into it, that you are really working very hard to come up with something that people are going to be very happy with and not arriving at that point through the specific drawings, like you were saying, but through very uh, poignant questions. Yeah, questions are really important. Understanding if people are night owls or early risers or all those things impact the design. And I don't know that those are questions that a lot of people ask their clients necessarily. My goal is that at the end of the project, I'm invited over for dinner and we have a great <laughs> dinner. That's all. That's all. I And I actually have, I don't have a website. I barely have a portfolio because once... The design's done. It's it's the, the those people and the land. So it's not like I don't even. I have very little attachment to my old project, and it sometimes drives people crazy. They're like, "Aren't you going to come over and visit?" And and I should, I should, because I like the people, and and I do want to see the house. But I already like because I, I've designed it. <laughs> I I kind of feel like it's fun to go over one, once and and see what there you know if there's personal touches and stuff like that added to it mm-hmm. but uh i feel like i'm usually on to the next thing which is kind of unfair but because it's the biggest thing in my clients world and it's probably fairly rude you know some people are i think they want more customer service maybe after the house is done. sure well they probably know. like hanging out with you as well too right I, like, oh, and we spent like so hang- much time with everest and and i did want know. that dinner and i did say that at the beginning so uh, I, I, yeah, I should, I should slow down. I, my new thing is going to be slowing my life down. I try and slow design down and now I need to slow my life down so that I can go and visit all these amazing clients that I've had and, and see them living in their space and actually getting critical feedback would be probably a really good idea. Have, you know, through like, uh, the different processes that you've gone through in terms of like helping other people, have you been able to take some of those questions lessons that you're trying to work through and apply them to your own life as have there been any life changes that have happened through like um realizations through the work that you've done in the last number of years hmm well i just finished building a place for myself and that was really interesting (laughs) yeah let's hear it well and i realized that i've spent so much time designing and building places and that my yeah, just that my my family is really so important. I missed my family when I was building that. Like our house, our cabin built burnt down, and then I had to rebuild. And oh, I I didn't have to rebuild, I guess, but I made the choice to rebuild, mm-hmm. and uh, it meant that I was away from the family a little bit, and that was really really hard. And 
Um, that's not really answering your question about design, but no, but it's a, it's a something that you learn in, right? Through- yeah, I learned, and I, there's many ways to create to inspire, and architecture is just one of them. Maybe that's that's what I learned. I mean, like I wanted to play more music. I'm starting to play more music. Just I, you know, I had great profs, and one of them lived in between Greece and Vancouver and was a mandolin player and uh, actually helped to write the book, um, A Pattern Language, which is like a a kind of like not a Bible of architecture, but it's one of those publications. Yeah, that that everybody, it it was big in the 70s anyways. (laughs) And, uh, but that, he seemed to me very, very balanced. I I think my, my life has not been balanced. And, uh, Maybe I'll even design more interesting things with a more balanced life. That is a good experiment to start on. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. And just so people kind of have a little bit of a, a knowledge about what you were saying, but uh, there was, uh, it was a cabin that you had up on Mount Washington? Yeah, it was a ca- So I, because I ski patrolled up Mount, uh, up Cypress for mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. and then I moved to Salt Spring slash Pender slash New York. I, it was hard for me to get up to to Savory. And every time I went there, I just did maintenance and I didn't enjoy it because I wasn't like sitting and looking at the view. I was just thinking, oh, I got to fix this and this and this. And I was also thinking, well, I have a place on an island and I live on other islands and I'm like, it's just too much island life. And from the view from my cabin on Savory was up Mount Washington. And I thought, oh, I should go check it out. So I went up there and there was a place for sale by owner at the time for really literally next to nothing. And I went back to Savory and my neighbors happened to be there. And I said, I'm thinking of selling. And they're like, we'll buy your place. And within 15 minutes, I had sold it to them. And then I went back up Mount Washington and I called the people and I said, I'm interested in your place. And, and I bought their place, this cabin. It was, and it's on a beautiful piece of land. Like it's, it, it looks out to park and only park. Whoa. Yeah, it's Strathcona Park, so it's one of the oldest parks in BC, and uh, so the view out is just of park. It's quite beautiful, and sadly the cabin burnt down, but I rebuilt in the exact same footprint. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, that process of rebuilding. Like you said, that you uh, you realized that you you missed <laughs> being around family, but while you were working on the project, did you find sense of satisfaction doing the build? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I learned so much on this particular build because it was in extreme circumstances, like 20 feet of snow and tight, tight timelines and limited budget. And uh, yeah, like ironically, I wanted to, my family had such good memories in the old cabin because we had the cabin for 20 years. Hmm. So my family had such good memories there that I was so committed to building a new building so that they could create more memories that I think I like lost touch with reality a little bit because the memories could have happened if I just hadn't built, you know, in a different way. But I was like, I'm going to create those memories again. But you can never, you know, there's that Rumi says you can never walk in the same river twice and you, you you know, you can't. So I've built this cabin uh, that that's, that's totally different than the original cabin and it will have totally different memories. And uh, I'm glad I built it on one level, like rebuilt, but 
I, I don't know if my, my intention, you know, just for having more memories that my family, it was really, I, I felt like I was building it for my family and they seem interested and they're happy, but, but like, <laughs> I really, I really wanted them to love it, like really love it. And I, I think they love it, but it's also like a source of sadness because I was away. So it, it kind of, it was a double-edged sword really building the cabin. I think time will heal and we will form new memories. And I built it like if it could be a 200 year house, maybe it, may, it might be, who knows? Time will tell, but I built it to last way beyond my life. You know, it's like multi-generational. I'm like, hopefully it doesn't burn down. And <laughs> hopefully, you know, my kids and their kids and their kids all can enjoy being up there and, and looking out at an area that's untouched and respect nature. And the trees are right next to it. And it's, you have to hike in to get to it. You have there's to no, hike in to get to it? Yeah, there's like in the summer you can drive in uh, up a really kind of not so great road. Yeah. But in the winter you have to hike in and that's one of the things I love about it. How far do you have to hike in? It's not like super far. You can, there's a there's a parking lot and you hike up yeah. from the parking lot. But it was this kind of development that they decided, it was called the Strata 799 and they don't allow any motorized vehicles in it which is really amazing because it's quiet and the snow is not sad snow. It's like pure, you know, it's like <clears throat> glorious, sparkly snow because there's not vehicles, you know, yeah. treading through it. <laughs> so it's, to me, it's funny because some people don't want to go because they're like, oh, I have to hike in. And I'm like, you don't understand. It's like, it's not, it's like you, you want to hike in because it's going to be quiet and it's going to be beautiful and you're going to be connected to the mountain in a way that's different than if you can just like, oh, I hear the garage door opening underneath my building, you know, my my cabin. <laughs> it's just, it's a different experience. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And the cabin, the new cabin is called Base Camp. I, I should have had a more poetic name, but but we, we named it Base Camp. I, I think that from what you're saying is that uh, like in terms of you wanting your family to love it, like something that's going to last for so long is going to be able to provide so many future memories. Yeah, I'm hoping the year it took to build it. I, I thought it was going to take six months. Uh, and it, for the most part, we were to lock up by six months. But uh, the year it took to build hopefully will sort of be minor compared to the like many, many years, like 50 or 70 or 100 years of enjoyment. I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm hoping it was worth it. <laughs> I was just checking the time here and we should probably end off with a couple questions here and and uh, reach the finish line. But here are two questions I want to ask. The first one is, Everest, how did you get your name? Okay. <laughs> okay, so it's, this is not a great... Well, it's okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's an okay story. I'll tell it. Okay. If you're comfortable telling it. Yeah, it's just people seem sometimes disappointed by my name um, when I tell them the story. But And some people think it's really entertaining. So I'll, you can decide. So when I was growing up, I had the same name as my mom and my mom lives on the island, Carol or Carolyn. My name was Carolyn and my mom's name's Carolyn. And so it was really confusing. Like I recommend that you don't name your kid after you. That's to anybody who has a, is pregnant. <laughs> don't name your kid after yourself yeah. because it's confusing. Like, do you want junior or senior or, you know, like you have to clarify all the time which which one like just two people in a small building that have the same name <laughs> anyways i mean i and i i love my my family and it was really 
nice of them to name me after my mom, who's incredible, but it was confusing. And so when I was a teenager, I had a large crush on, I was an air cadet. And that was another thing I was, because <laughs> uh, I wanted to, I was doing all my ground theory because I was going to go up to Whitehorse and get my pilot's license. And um, at the, at the 11th hour, I panicked. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go up to Whitehorse. I heard there was bugs and it was a long time to be away from my family. And I just, I didn't go, but the person I had a crush on did go. And uh, I did a lot of art as well. and. We were sitting, he was a really good friend of mine, but I didn't want him to know that I had a crush on him. And I was really sad I wasn't going up north with him either to be a pilot. <laughs> and I said, I I don't like my name because um, like I, I don't feel like I have my own identity. And he's like, I hate my name too because it's kind of boring. And And I said, well, let's change our names for the sake of like, you can write to me and I'll sign my artwork. And so he's like, okay, that sounds good. So we were just sitting on the couch and he picked up the first magazine he, he could on the coffee table and it was a TV guide because they had TV guides at the time because there's no internet. <laughs> and he opened it up and he said, put your finger down anywhere. And I put my finger down and it said, Everest Expeditions on the Brink of Disaster. And he said, your name is Everest Disaster. <laughs> and I was like, well, no, how about Everest Brink? Because I could be on the brink of something really positive. So actually my cabin on Savory was called Everest Brink because it was on the top of a cliff. So I started writing my name Everest Brink on everything and he would he wrote me letters and and my mom didn't open them, you know, like which was good, but they weren't love letters <laughs> unfortunately. So then uh when I applied to that graphic design studio, I left my portfolio and I came back a week later and cuz nobody had cell phones and I lived in a squat <laughs> and there was no internet. <laughs> so I came back a week later and I said, yeah, I left my portfolio here a week ago. And they're like, oh, you must be Everest. And I was like, actually, and they're like, Everest meets so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And I was like, well, actually, you know, I was trying to like say, my name's not Everest, you know? And they said, well, yeah, anyways, they just call me Everest. I, I couldn't get, I couldn't shake it. And of course I'm up in Whistler and I, I was a really good, I was actually a good telemark skier as well as snowboarder. And and so it just suited my my persona, I guess. And so I, I, that wasn't my real name still. It was like my non de plume. But then when I went to go work in New York, I had a working visa that said Everest because my client only knew me as Everest. And I was going through Homeland Security. And they're like, who's Everest? Because my, my passport didn't say Everest. I said, oh, that's just my nickname. And they're like, we don't do nicknames in Homeland Security. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. So they almost didn't let me. Like, I was actually, like, crying at the airport because I had to, like, the, the, the flight was about to take off. This woman who was so nice helped me to get a fax from my client who updated this letter so that it said my, my actual given name. Anyways, after that, I legally changed my name to Everest so that, I didn't get held up on Homeland Security. Job well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. TV Guide. TV Guide. Who would have known that <laughs> you can you can find great names in the TV Guide? Absolutely. My friends, my friend, put their finger down 
on a Mexican film starring Sanchez Velaspio. So their name is San- nickname is Sanchez now. Yeah, that's got a good ring to it too. I like Sanchez. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that as well. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't. They don't use it except for when I'm talking to them. But um, yeah. well, it's a great name. It's a, seriously Everest is a fantastic name. Thank your, you. Your finger landed in a really good spot that day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and to uh, to end things off, something you mentioned earlier in the interview, and that was about uh, single lane gravel road going around a really sketchy bend in the road on South Pender Island on the way to Bedwell Harbor, and you you have a, a special memory, fondness for that uh, that place, and um, and you said that that was your favorite place in the world when you were a young girl, and uh, how has that place been in your life since that time? Well, yeah. So when I was there, I remember looking out at the view, watching the sun go down, smelling the arbutus leaves and thinking, this is where I want to live forever. Like this is, this is the spot. And, um, ironically, I ended up working at that, the property that's next to that hairpin. It's actually the middle of the hairpin. (laughs) And I did a, designed a guest cottage for that property. And, uh, I said to them, I've always loved this area. Like, it's incredible. I said, is there ever anything that comes for sale here? And they said, no, nothing's ever been for sale for about 10 years when the original subdivision happened up on that, on that ridge. It's called Oxbow Ridge. And uh, I said, well, if anything ever comes up, let me know. And uh, they said, yeah, we will for sure. So I was delivering the final drawings to them. And I drove up the road and there was a for sale sign. And I was like, you didn't tell me. And they said, well, we didn't even know there was something for sale. And it... The realtor, I called the realtor and he's like, I just put that up 20 minutes ago. <laughs> and it was in, it was like January or February. And it was these people from Texas were selling and I didn't quite have enough money to buy it. And I said, I am putting all of my money together, like everything I can to, to give this offer. But if you're offended, you can totally walk away and find somebody else. This is just the maximum I can give you. And, uh, they, they accepted it. So I was able to live like 200 feet away from the place. So, which also segues nicely to the film that I made way before I ever bought this property Yeah, where one leg is shorter than the other. So you'll end up where you started. (laughs) Of course it does. Yeah. That's so lovely. I mean, that is just such a wonderful thing, right? To have that feeling as a, as you know, a young child, and then to be able to like have that come into fruition to make that happen for yourself. It, it is incredible, and I think kids have so much insight because they're so connected to the land when they're young. They're shorter, and <laughs> they they spend a lot of time on the land. Because I was just thinking about when I was sixteen, my my parents. Uh, actually offered the farm to the community. But it was the same year I had a really reduced price because they thought it would be an amazing museum or something because it's the oldest remaining house on Pender Island. And I they offered it to the community, but it was the same year that the Magic Lake Fire Hall was being voted on as well. So they were voting, you know, to buy the old McDonald farmhouse or the fire hall or build the fire hall and the fire hall won. I think because a lot of the people who own property in Magic Lake were from Calgary and didn't know any of the historical significance of, you know, and also people want their houses to be protected from fire. So, um, so then my dad actually looked for the right person to try and buy it. And, um, 
because he really felt it was important that this piece of legacy, you know, came to. But I was so happy they were selling at the time. Like now I'm like horrified that it was sold out of the family after that long of a period of time. But at the time, I think my dad said, well, we might get a house with a pool. And that was it. I was like, okay, <laughs> enough of the farmland. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. no more farming. And so uh, you kind of lose perspective as you get older a little bit. I think, you know, like I had so much clarity when I was that age, you know, on that corner and in the trees and sliding down the hill. So much of my life has been you know, and now actually I do have a, that's why I have my pool, like, is because we had a cistern outside of the farmhouse. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why can't you swim in this? So my cistern at my house is my pool. And I, and I bought it because my, we didn't end up buying a house that had a pool. We sold the farm and we didn't get the house with the pool. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> so that, so I built the pool before the house actually on my property. Oh, really? That yep. was, that came first? Yep. Wow. I was like, I'm. I don't care if I live in my van. I'm going to have a pool yeah. to swim in. <laughs> I can have a cistern that I can swim in. <laughs> yeah. Um, we easily could record for 10 hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, time to uh, go. I'm yeah. going to name this podcast the most interesting woman in the world. I'm shocked. I'm amazed uh, at so many of the things you shared about your life, Everest. It's, it's really incredible. Um, but before we uh, end off, the last word goes to you. Anything that you uh, you want to add that you didn't get to say during this podcast, or final words to end off? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Other than just what I was saying about kids, kids have so much. You can learn so much from kids, and actually, uh, nobody in the world has ever read my master's thesis. I guess except for my thesis uh, advisory people, but it was about uh, intuitive design and. I wrote it as a narrative and it's uh, my niece. It's, it's my niece talking about simple things that are observant that adults don't observe in architecture. And I was trying to make architecture accessible because so much stuff is so academic and uh, I wanted to make it really simple. Uh, and so I really feel like intuitive design is really important. If you think you're not going to like something just like there's a little finagle. Like you look at some drawings, like if you're, if you've hired somebody to design your house, if somebody out there is, I'm not working with them or whatever, then if you have any inkling that you're not going to like something on the paper, mm -hmm. you won't like it in real life. Like intuition is so important to design. And, um, we lose that as we get older. So and, uh, but I feel like I'm coming back to it now, you know, by playing music. That's very intuitive and doing more art and being out in nature and hikes. All those things help with your intuition, I think. And yeah. listening to it, that also helps your intuition. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. you can you can have intuitive hits all day, but if you're not following through on them, it won't it won't keep coming back. I feel like that's right. uh, I feel like it's a feedback loop. That uh, when you do listen to your intuition, that uh, maybe you just become more in tune with it, or it does come back on a, on a more frequent basis. But yeah, yeah, intuition is practice a, intuition. Yeah, <laughs> Everest, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you again so much to Everest for doing that, and thank you for sticking around to the end. So obviously, I did not name this podcast the most interesting woman in the world, but I easily could have because 
Holy crap, wasn't that amazing? That was incredible. I was totally stunned hearing one story after another about Everest talking about her life. And we had a great conversation afterwards about her experience in New York when she was there, which we did not have time to fit into the interview. But let me tell you, the amazing stories just kept coming. So I hope you enjoyed that one very much. It really means a lot that people listen to this podcast. There's a lot of different things to listen to, and I receive a lot of good feedback from people about the work that I do, so thank you for that. I'd like to thank Everest's partner, Ben McConkie, for providing the theme music for this podcast. And once again, thank you. Until next time.